Good afternoon and welcome to A Contagious Smile, where every smile tells a story. I am with Jill, who I have actually been honored enough to be on her podcast, so we're kind of uh, switching up today. She's coming on to tell us how she survived a, a horrific, horrific situation, and my heart goes out to her because she is thriving, and I'm so honored to even know this woman. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I truly appreciate it. Thanks. I'm just really thrilled that we can talk to each other on our podcasts and get to know each other. (laughs) I know. I know. And you listened to my story last time. So now it's my time to listen to yours. So I I hate even talking about it, but I know how healing it is. You went through a really bad abusive situation. Can you tell us about it? I did. Um, I was adopted. Actually, I was adopted twice. I was adopted once from Korea, and then I was adopted into a family in the United States, and then they abandoned me, and I was adopted to another family. And that family, my father molested both my sister and I, and during... um, and then then they they divorced and so my mother took us up to north idaho to head towards the canadian border so we could get away um from him but um she was she was violently abusive and um and i mean the the kind of abuse like i remember as an 8 year old like looking and checking to see if there was there was blood coming through my shirt because nobody could know you know and it was um it was an environment that was so filled with shame like it's your fault you know kids automatically default to it's their fault and they right. because that's their way of controlling the situation right we do it now yeah absolutely and so that was, you know, nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew, um, you know, anything was, anything was bad. Um, we were the picture perfect family. Um, everybody, everybody wanted to, um, you know, be a part of the family because we were so perfect. We had perfect grades and we were national competitors for debate and, and, um, piano and all of that. But, you know, just to kind of give you an example as a, um, as a eighth grader, I remember um, one time I forgot to put my bike in the right place in the garage. And my mother um, beat me so bad that I couldn't hear out of either ear. And I um, thought she had broke my jaw and I had two black eyes and I was bruised from head to toe. I missed school for a couple of weeks and um what did and she tell the school happened? I don't know. See, this is the thing. I don't know how I could miss school and nobody would notice or ask. But here's the thing. She had, she hid things so much and she kept us so isolated. Like I had a stepdad at that time. I had a stepsister. I had a brother and a sister in the house and nobody came and talked to me. Like I was in my room alone for two weeks because she kept everybody away. So I don't know. I don't know what the hell she told the school. I, I, I just can't even, can't even imagine, but that, that is just an example of just kind of her violence. And so you add, um, sexual trauma. And then I had, I had more of that in my, um, in my, uh, grade school life and, and early teens. And, um, you add that with just this really violent, crazy, abusive mother. And, um, I was kind of set up for lots of, um, 
lots of trauma and needing needing a lot of help. So did this only happen to you or did it happen to your sister as well? My sister as well and my brother. Um, my brother, uh, I think because he got bigger and stronger, I think she backed off of him. Um, and my sister, for some reason, um, she didn't beat my sister very much. Um, she played a lot of mind games with her. But for me, for some reason, I don't know if it was because I was smaller or, you know, I, I don't know. But um, I seem to get the worst of the physical abuse, um, as I recall. So... You know, I don't know what it was about my sister that kind of kept her. One of the, one of my theories is my sister um, sustained horrific abuse. So, um, I don't know if you can put it on a better or worse level, but um, just really, all of it's horrific. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, but she really sustained some some terrible, terrible things, and I don't know if if uh, my mother felt guilty about that and so didn't didn't want to mess her up more. I don't know. I I have all sorts of speculations about that, but she just wasn't as cruel to her as she was, as she was to me. Where is your mother today? She's gone. She died um, like a year and a half ago. How does that, are you relieved or are you sad? Well, here's the deal. The state took custody of me finally when I was 16. I was raised in Idaho and Idaho doesn't have an emancipation law. So you can't divorce yourself from your parents. So until you're of age at 18, you're you're stuck. So the state finally took custody of me um, because I had told a teacher or somebody that something was, I told a teacher, I said, you know, things are really bad at home. If I don't come back on Monday, you should come look for me. And so that raised everybody's red flags because she had threatened to kill me. And so, yeah, she was just like, she. this is what she did in the name of the church. She said, she said, I am your God given authority and I can do anything to you that I need to, to make you behave, including kill you. Like flat out straight conversation across the kitchen table. Oh my God. Um, and that wasn't the only time she said that, but, um, but so I was, I was afraid. And so I told, I told yes. this this teacher that. And um, so I ended up um, going to a friend's house. And then um, then uh, that friend's mother figured out what was going on and got me with Department of Family Services and the state took custody because, excuse me, because my stepfather was able to verify that things had happened. So I always wondered why he never intervened. Um, I was going to ask you that. I, I think it was just a weakness on his part, but he did. He was able, he was the only person who was able to verify that that happened in our home. And so the state took custody of me, but because we had embarrassed her, um, you know, ruined her image, uh, she disowned us. And so um, my sister and I, my brother at that time stood by us, stood by her and said nothing had happened. Everything had been copacetic. Everything was fine. Um, He was just delusional at that point. Um, but the state through a long series of court battles and, and different things, the state ended up giving custody back to her. Um, no, ma'am. 
Yes. In the court, in the court, she actually played her own attorney and, um, and she stood up a couple of times in the courtroom and was just screaming at me. She's lying. She's lying. And the judge didn't do anything. And at the end of the day, the judge said, you know, people discipline in all sorts, in all different ways. And you're a straight A student and you're very accomplished and you obviously have no problem. They said, you know, we pick up students that he said, we pick up kids that are on drugs or have broken bones. You have no marks on you right now. So there's not a problem. So he gave custody back to her. And so she sent me to live with a friend. Um, and after about a week, um, one of her friends, after about a week, the friend came to me and said, your mother's had a nervous breakdown. She doesn't want to have anything to do with you. And you can go wherever you want. You just can't stay here. So I ended up going back to the friend's house and um, and stayed there until I went to college. But as of that point in 1990, my mother didn't talk to me. So so when you ask, was it hard when she died? It was a long process of saying goodbye. I mean, since 1990, I mean, it's been 30 years. So. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's been a um, it's. It's just been a long process of saying goodbye. Wow. I am so sorry. I just, it just makes me sick. Cause I'm sorry. I think there's so much wrong with our judicial system and the laws and how they're governed. I just. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, um, hideous. it's hideous in some, in some situations. And, and again, um, you know, I mean, the attorney that I had, he's, you know, he gave me his at that time home phone number. There wasn't any cell phones. And he said, you need to call me if you need help because she's going to kill you. And they I mean, adopt me. yeah, everybody knew, you know, but, um, but she, uh, she just had this image and her, her idea was that if we would tell everybody, which is unrealistic, but everybody who had heard that we, that she abused us, that we were lying, then she would take us back. So she had this insatiable need to be loved and thought well of. And the only way that that could happen is if we, is if we said, no, this wasn't a problem. So what happened to your psyche after all of this? How did you even stay on the up and up? Well, you know, I don't know. I think there was a couple of things. One, when I was 14, um, I felt that, well, let me preface it with saying I was raised in the church. So I was always in the church. We were always the perfect family in church and everything. So church was a very central part of our lives. And so when I was 14, I really felt like my, um, my call, my purpose was to be a part of the life of the church as a, as a minister. And so that really kept me focused um, through so much of the of the drama um, because I, I because I had a purpose. Right. I had something external that was that I was that I was shooting at. Um, and I, I think that really that really helped. I went to uh, college right when I was 17, right out of high school. I was a young I was a young graduate and um, went to college. And as soon as I went to college, I got involved in uh, church and uh, started working. So I've I've been somebody's pastor since I was 17 years old. 
And, and of course, um, well, not of course, but hopefully, you know, if you're going to be um, living a life of faith and helping other people grow faith, um, hopefully your character is such that um, you can exemplify some of that. And I, I took that very seriously. And, you know, I didn't do everything perfect and I didn't do everything right, but it just gave me kind of a governor um, right. to to, to help me stay on the path. Now, I remember I was super sick my freshman year of college, and it was the first time that I had ever heard someone say PTSD. And of course, this is 1991. So, I mean, we didn't start talking about PTSD yeah. until, you know, the 70s and 80s. And before that, it was all, you know, shell shock and, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so this was very early on. He never referred me to any kind of psychological help. I had counselors. I didn't have therapists, but he just said, a, a medical doctor said, you have PTSD from all of this. So I remember that. And I always had counselors. I had people to talk to, but um, delving into what um, what actually was going on and some of the some of the darker points of abuse and all that that didn't happen until my early 40s and uh so i raised raised had my babies raised kids um started a couple of churches started three churches um helped you know worked as a business consultant i did all of the things and worked very very hard and then just collapsed when i was when i was in my early 40s and absolutely just had a mental breakdown. So it wasn't it wasn't until then that I um, had to confront uh, everything all at once because my body just couldn't hold it together anymore. So what was like the straw that just broke you into a mental breakdown? Well, you know, I was super busy for one. I had four teenagers at home. Which was crazy, but fun. I had one daughter leaving um, to the armed services. And um, so it was it was a crazy time. I was working as a business consultant, flying back and forth to consult businesses. I also had my own church. I was pastoring that. That church had had a lot drama, like several suicide attempts, dead mommies, um, a murder, kidnapping, suicide. I mean, a lot of really different traumatic things that I had to be a part of um, being being a care person in those situations. Um, So that was one of the straws, definitely. So definitely busyness and definitely the trauma in the church. But the other thing was, is we were having marital problems. And my husband had taken a job where he was traveling all the time, which left me with all the craziness and all the jobs and it just, right. Without support. And it just became too much. And I just cratered. And, um, and so my, uh, my bosses, uh, the denominational people said, we really want you to go to this workshop on childhood trauma because we feel like it'll help you understand how trauma that you're dealing with is affecting your everyday life, which was kind and um, gracious. But I told them I wasn't going. <laughs> I said, I'm not going. And they said, yes, you are. We bought you a plane ticket. But you know, the reason why I didn't want to is because when my sister started to delve into all of the past trauma and everything, she just went 
downhill. Like from there, she just fell apart, um, physically fell apart, emotionally fell apart, eventually ended up addicted to drugs. And she had died. She had died of addiction the year before this all happened. So she died. So sorry. Thank you. She died in December. And then all this happened in, in the next summer. And how young was she? We eulogized her on her 40th birthday. I'm so sorry. Oh, so, yeah, it was it was really tragic. And so um so she that was that was also weighing on me. But of course it was. I, yeah, so I went to this um I went to this workshop and um on the third day it was kind of funny. The first day they said you've begun the, the you know 3 to 5 years of trauma treatment and I'm like you've got me for three to five days. That's what I signed up for. (laughs) You have 72 hours. (laughs) (laughs) On the third day of the workshop, I had a major dissociative experience and just, um, you know, past became present and I was lost and lost time and lost in space and um, was completely disoriented and uh, everything just kind of went all to hell at once. And um, the next day, um, the directors of the workshop said, well, um, we want you to be inpatient, go inpatient. And I'm like, mm, no, pass, hard pass. And um, and uh, I said, you know, I've got a family at home. I've got a church. I've got a business. I've got, you know, all this stuff going on. And they're like, you really need to be inpatient. And they said, so we will we will call the people who sent you here. So it was my denomination, a church denomination. They said, we'll call them and talk to them. And I'm like, go for it. It's $65,000 to stay here for six weeks. Uh, you know, go for it. Right. Good luck. <laughs> and, so, and so they called them and they said, whatever she needs, we'll pay for it. Wow. And then because of my dissociative disorder and they were having trouble pinning down what exactly was my official diagnosis um, with mental health, they ended up uh, keeping me for almost three months. Um, so to, who had your kids? My husband did. Oh, okay. Because he, I thought he was traveling to work. He was, but he quit. And, um, and stayed home with them and, and everything. So he, um, he was actually, he was doing some work as a, as a broadcaster for a local, um, baseball team. And it was at the end of the season. So it kind of worked, worked out well. So, so he, um, yeah, he stayed with them and, and I was in this isolated bubble of a mental hospital for two and a half months. So it was, it was the weirdest experience. It was, um, beautiful in the sense that I felt like I could be myself. I felt like I could grieve. I could talk about hard things. I could, I had the freedom to do all those things, to have emotion, to not hide anything. Um, but it was also super hard because it was so isolated, you know, no cell phones, no computers, no, you know, there was no music, no radios, no, you know, cause they try to desensitize everything. There was no caffeine, <laughs> There was no oh, sugar. Oh, nope, I'm out. <laughs> I can't have my unsweet tea. Forget it. I'm, done. I'm out. <laughs> they said, you know, you know, caffeine and sugar are mood-altering substances, so you can't have those. And I'm like, they're smoking outside, and I can't have coffee after 8 a.m.? <laughs> right. Like, okay, the rain and the bad weather is mood-altering, <laughs> so what are you going to do? Paint the windows? Exactly. I mean, so, hard. 
Yeah. So I was there for, for quite a long time before they came out with some mental health diagnosis and kind of figured out what was going on with me. So then I came home and um, life just changed completely. We had to shut down the church. I lost my business I because I couldn't work. I mean, I was so overwhelmed with everything that was happening. And, uh, you know, when you start to open that door to, you know, traumatic and, you know, traumagenic events, um, you start opening that door and it can just drown you. Yes. So I went into um, what is now seven and a half years of trauma treatment and um, and just working through all of this garbage pail of stuff. So so that's that's how I ended up um, spending some time in uh, in a mental hospital, which has some really great stories to it, too. But (laughs) (laughs) what? Give me one of your best. Okay, so um, in art class, in one of the art classes, art therapy, um, this the art therapist asked this gal who had taken, you're supposed to make your your monsters that, your inner monsters and make them out of clay and talk to everybody about what it, what they meant, you know. And so um, one of the ladies, she's this older lady, probably about 80 years old. She used to follow me around campus. She'd go, I don't even know why you're here. You look fine. You look fine. You need to go home. I don't know why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> she was she was hilarious, but she um, anyway she made this snake, and the art therapist asked her. She said, "Does that represent your father coiled up, ready to strike out in anger?" And she looked at her and she goes, "No, it represents the easiest thing to make with clay." <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> So, yeah, there were some characters there for sure. Now, let me ask, growing up, and this is this isn't a funny question, growing up and then having a family of your own, how did you keep yourself from repeating the cycle that you went through? I don't know. I... I, I think it's a, a, a couple of things. One, I knew I wanted something different. Mm-hmm. Um, two, my husband's family is a very strong family, very strong family unit. Um, great kids, great, I mean, great relationships and everything. So that was a good example for me. We had a great community of friends. We had... Um, like these seven families in our church when when I moved to Montana to pastor, um, there was like these seven families that just kind of raised their kids together. We're all very close still. And you could watch other people parent and go, I like that. I don't like that. You know, so we weren't isolated. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's one of the keys is that we weren't isolated. So we were able to watch other parents and and um, kind of self-select what we wanted the family to look like. Um, didn't do everything right, but the kids are healthy and well and um, doing the young adult thing. They're all four married and I have a grandbaby. And No way. Not yeah. I have a grandbaby. You don't look old enough to have kids even out of the house. Thanks. <laughs> I'm knocking on the door of 50. No. Yeah, I turned 50 in a couple of months. Man, I remember when I first met you and you're like, we're about to do renovations. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And that's, I was like, she just looks so young. <laughs> well, some days I feel it and other days I don't. So, but yeah, so, um, so I don't, you know, I don't know. I think, um, we were, we were very fortunate and, um, 
you know, with some intentionality of what we wanted our kids to to be like and act and, and, you know, how we wanted them to be involved in their world. I think, um, I think we've been very fortunate. And how do you feel you are today versus back then? I mean, do you feel like you still have some? Well, you know, um, there's, there's, things that have changed. Like I work from home. I'm a podcaster. I write, um, and I'm an artist. And, uh, so those things are very much more mellow than what my life used to be. It used to be crazy and people and schedules and events and, and meetups and services and all that kind of stuff. It used to be a hundred miles an hour all the time. And I'm at like, 20 miles an hour now, you know, so it really helps keep everything down to a dull, dull roar. I'm able to handle my anxiety and my depression in ways that are healthier Mm -hmm. rather than just continue to shove them down. I've been in trauma treatment for, like I said, seven and a half years, um, working through, you know, working through different pieces of my story. And, um, and I, you know, I take medication and I sleep and I, you know, I do all of the things that, um, that I, that I'm supposed to do to help keep everything under control. Um, I'm lucky enough that I don't have to work full time and, um, I have the fortune and the luxury to have that opportunity. Um, but I think, I think I'm much better than I was obviously when I was just bouncing off the walls. Uh, I'm not as good as I, as I want to be. I, I wish I could be more engaged in what I think say is engaged in, you know, other people's lives and and busy and not quite so um, in my head all the time, Mm -hmm. but I think that'll come. I think Mm -hmm. it's just patience and uh, just, just seasons, right? I just think right. we have to be patient with ourselves and give each other, give ourselves a lot of grace and just say, this is what works for today. And, and we'll see what tomorrow has. Right. Now, what kind of artwork do you do? What kind of artist are you? Um, I am a watercolor artist. And Ooh, so right. uh, I do a lot of florals right now. And I'm just kind of learning. I mean, I'm start, I'm kind of at the point where I'm selling some things now. Um, but uh, so I'm just working it out, figuring out what what works and what I like and what I don't like. Is so. there anywhere people can go and look at your work? Yeah, you can go to uh, art. Dot art. Yes. I've never heard of dot arts yet. Actually, I think it's ejillreilly.art. I think it's ejillreilly.art. So E and then Jill Riley. Okay. Riley.art. Yeah. That is so cool. Tell everybody your podcasts. So my podcast is Post Traumatic Faith, and it started out as um, when I was kind of working through my um, my own my own issues with mental illness and 
just feeling so much shame around that and feeling so labeled and everything. I just thought I'm going to write about this. And so I started writing. And after about 10 days, I, I started a hundred day write. And after about 10 days, I'm like, I'm just going to get naked. Like everybody can know anything they want about me. I'm just going to tell them. And so I started talking about mental illness and, and mental health and, and my life and medications and all these different things. And after I finished that write, I thought, well, maybe I should podcast this. I just got it in my brain that I should. So I started reading some of those things on the podcast. And then um, then I thought it would be great to invite some other people into this conversation. And so the second season, um, I uh, invited other people like yourself to be part of the conversation. And then I did a third season and um, I'm almost done recording my third season. That'll run through the end of March. So, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what, uh, I wanted to do to tell people about, to talk about and open the conversation about mental health, wholeness, self-care, um, and, you know, lots of different people, um, you know, other podcasters like yourself, authors, uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, a mobster, a couple of people that have been um, out of prison and um, really kind of found ways to give back to their communities, uh, police officers, chaplains, counselors, therapists, just really a diverse group. Wow. Tell me where everybody can find you on social media if they're looking for you. Social media, I'm under either E. Jill Riley or Jill Riley. My my first name is Emily. And so I kind of put a placeholder there. So it's either E. Jill Riley or Jill Riley. And you can find me on, you know, um, Twitter and and uh, Instagram and Facebook and all of that. Um, but most of my stuff and all of the links to my social media are at uh, JillRiley.com. So R-I-L-E-Y is, is Riley. So um, everything is kind of centralized there. So the podcast, social media links, information about me, that kind of thing. Mugshots. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for being here with us today. And I'm so proud of how far you've come. It's amazing. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for being here.